Hello, and welcome to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Parrott, an historian and deputy director here at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Tech Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you this morning, Bill? I'm doing great and very excited about our special guest today, Seth. Absolutely. And as Bill alluded to, aside from our aside from Bill and I, we have a special guest today, and I will hand this off to Captain Toady to introduce our guest and our topic for today. Bill, take it away. Well, thank you, Seth. Seth and I are very happy today to have a special guest at retired Admiral Thomas Fargo. Now, I worked for Admiral Fargo twice in my career, once on Navy staff in N81, and the second time when I was submarine commodore in Hawaii, and he was Commander United States Pacific Command. So all joint forces in the Pacific, now called Indo-PACOM, but then called PACOM. Um, here's a picture we're going to show for those of you watching on the video of me and Admiral Fargo when we were both a little younger while we were still both on active duty in Hawaii. Admiral Fargo was a 1970 graduate of Annapolis, so he graduated nine years before I did. And he is a very distinguished submariner commanding USS Salt Lake City. Now, if you ever saw the movie Hunt for Red October, in fact, you see a poster of it be behind him as he's sitting here today. <laughs> the Scott Glenn character, who was the commanding officer of USS Dallas, was actually modeled after then Commander Fargo. Um, now, as a flag officer, Admiral Fargo commanded Submarine Group 7 in Yokosuka, Japan, Commander Task Force 7-4, Commander Task Force 157 in the Western Pacific, the Indian Ocean and Persian Gulf, he commanded the United States Fifth Fleet. And if that wasn't enough, Naval Forces of Central Command during uh, two years of the Iraqi contingency operation from Jan July 96 to July 98. And then he served, as I said, as the 29th Commander-in-Chief, United States Pacific Fleet from October 1999 to May 2002. Was that right, Admiral? Did I get it wrong? Was it Pack Fleet or Paycom? It was Paycom. Right. Right? Well, you, you got it right. You know, actually, uh, historically, I took over Sink Pack Fleet because right. it was still the Commander in Chief of the Pacific Fleet then in in October of 1999, and stayed there until May of 2002, and then moved up to Paycom Sink Pack at the time, yeah. and right. about halfway through my tour. Uh, we changed the uh, the name to Commander U.S. Pacific Command uh, in yeah. deference to the President of the United States as the only Commander in Chief. We actually talked about that. Roosevelt tried to get King to take the Commander in Chief title away from King, and King refused to do it, being Admiral <laughs> King, right? <laughs> so, but Rumsfeld and we we did an episode with um with Admiral Stavridis, who was, of course, Rumsfeld's deputy when all of that went down and, yep. and you lost the commander-in-chief title. So and we covered that. In addition to Admiral Fargo's many American decorations in February 2005, he was appointed an honorary officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished naval service, particularly strengthening the Australia-United States Alliance, whilst commander of United States Pacific Command. And I say that because we have we have many uh, listeners of our podcast in Australia. So welcome to them. And Admiral Fargo, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Yes, sir. Well, it's great to be with you both. And of course, this is a subject uh, near and dear to all our our hearts. Um, 
as I told Bill, I was out at Pearl Harbor on on Tuesday and on Fort Island uh, for that matter, and came back and took a lap around the submarine force uh, just to put me in the proper frame of mind for this session today. Yeah, the best house I ever, will ever live in my entire life was my Fort Island house when I was Commodore with the Arizona Memorial in my backyard mm. next to what we jo lovingly referred to as the John Wayne house, which was the house that John Wayne and Burgess Meredith lived in in the movie In Harm's Way, which was right next to mine. And so um, across the street from that swimming pool where the opening scene of In Harm's Way mm -hmm. takes place. And so thank you, sir. Yeah. So, Admiral, maybe we, you could set the stage for the strategic uh, circumstance that existed in the Pacific immediately following the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Bill. And, and of course, as uh, as we all know now, the, the Japanese uh, uh, were very intent on securing the resources they needed for their war machine as they moved into China and down into uh, into Southeast Asia. Uh, and of course, those came from what they called the Southern Resources Area, which were down, you know, around Indonesia and in that particular region. And uh, the United States uh, essentially decided that they were going to cut off those resources uh, in an effort to uh, stop the carnage that was happening uh, in Asia. And the Japanese, of course, uh, attacked Pearl Harbor. So uh, that those resources are important because they, they influence kind of the direction and the strategic guidance that King was to provide uh, Nimitz uh, in terms of how this submarine force was to be employed. Uh, so that's the start of, uh, of the war. And of course, uh, after Pearl Harbor, and we all know uh, uh, that history, the only assets that were really available to the Pacific Fleet were Halsey's carriers that were, were not in Pearl Harbor on that particular day. And of course, the submarine force and the attack on Pearl Harbor missed the submarine force. It missed the submarine force, uh, the naval shipyard, which was also uh, uh, key to our recovery. And of course, it missed all the oil that was mm -hmm. uh, located uh, in Hawaii. So uh, so that's kind of the, the setting. Uh, other strategic decisions influenced the employment of the submarine force. We had made a decision uh, after the start of the war that uh, we would attend to Europe and the Atlantic first. So the, the resources available uh, to the Pacific commanders were were pretty limited. Uh, and uh, given that, uh, strategies were put together to employ the submarine force in the early days of World War II. Mm -hmm. Now, you, in an earlier episode, I made a mistake of saying that within hours of the um, of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Admiral King sent out a message uh, directing um, un uh, submarine. Unrestricted submarine warfare. The moment I said it in that episode, of course, you can't go back. We never edited it out. I realized I'd made a mistake. It was Admiral Stark. Admiral King wasn't um, calm inch yet. Uh, it was Admiral Stark. And and the myth, or the myth, the, the story goes that he didn't even check with it, President Roosevelt. Right. He just declared unrestricted submarine warfare. Of course, the Germans had already been in, in conducting unrestricted submarine warfare in the Atlantic. So there was precedent. Hmm. Do you, and the Japanese had a pretty effective and powerful submarine force as well. So there's a lot going on here. 
And of course, Japan, like Great Britain, is an island nation. To what extent do you think it was important for that to happen so early with the unrestricted submarine warfare against this island nation? Well, the, the goal, of course, was to stop this flow of resources up mm -hmm. uh, from uh, the, the Southern Pacific to Japan. And the only way you could reasonably do that was with, uh, with the submarine force. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it was uh, obviously a, uh, an appropriate and strategic decision made at the outset. And it, it unleashed the submarine force to, to go after the, the freighter and, and merchant activity that was very prolific, um, you know, moving uh, throughout uh, those sea lines of communications. And of course, you know, people think that these submarines were out there attacking uh, combatants, you know, destroyers, cruisers, Japanese aircraft carriers at the start. And that wasn't the case at all. Uh, it was very much uh, dealing with this logistics flow. Uh, and that's where uh, those submarines were pointed and were challenged to uh, contribute. Uh, in fact, you would hear a submarine at that point in time say it's not worth wasting a torpedo on a destroyer escort. Right. So, uh, uh, that uh, was how we intended to interdict uh, the flow of resources to Japan. Yeah. Seth? And while that while that inter interdiction that that plan was obviously proved to be very fruitful later on in the war in the beginning of the war you know and and to count to to go back to what Bill was saying the unrestricted submarine warfare um, that order was given six hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor mm -hmm. six hours so I mean that. To your point, Admiral, you know, the United States, we were fully aware of the damage that had been sustained by the fleet at Pearl Harbor. And we knew, we being the upper level leadership of the United States Navy, knew that we had two things to use to strike back at Japan, the carriers and the subs. So I mean, there's a reason that six hours after the attack ended that the order was issued. But back to my original point, um, the early part of the war, the subs, while they were being deployed in a proper way, we had some issues, did we not? Yeah, we had a, we had a number of issues, and I just want to make a comment before I get into that. That King was kind of a submariner. I mean, he right. he was actually a surface guy, and then a submariner, and and then an aviator, and he was right. kind of looking oh. for for sponsorship, you know, along his <laughs> his career. But he he understood the the value and the capability and the lethality of the submarine force going in. Uh, but we did have problems, and you know, frankly. Uh, these were the submarine forces mostly populated by older S-boats um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that had had problems in their own right. I mean, we were, we were losing some of these boats to operational issues. Uh, the, the commanding officers of the of these submarines were were very conservative, and and maybe because of these operational issues, they uh, they were they were risk adverse. They uh, their success was making sure they didn't lose their submarine. So right, right. as you can imagine, uh, they, uh, in fact, uh, weren't the kind of aggressive commanding officer that was needed to really take the fight uh, to the enemy. Uh, so a lot of those commanding officers were replaced. Uh, the tactics were, uh, once again, uh, very conservative. I mean, we, we shot from relatively long distances submerged uh, with torpedoes that weren't very good. And so uh, we didn't hit much during that early period of time. And then, of course, uh, the fact that uh, 
that really uh, stuck uh, in the craw of everybody was the torpedoes and their exploders didn't function properly. I, I think one of the statistics I saw that in the early days of the war, certainly Lockwood, when he was in command of the submarines in the Southwest Pacific, saw this uh, with great clarity. Um, you know, of the torpedoes we shot, maybe 20% ended up as a hit. I mean, even if it was a good shot, and we were we were getting reports of torpedoes bouncing off the hulls. I mean, they can hear the acoustic echo of the torpedo bouncing off the hulls of these targets. And it was hugely frustrating for the submarine force. But uh, that's what they were dealing with in the early days of, of World War II. Yeah, to illustrate that, Admiral, I have the number here. It was a total of 14,748 torpedoes fired during the course of the war. 14,748. And it's estimated that at least 50% of them, maybe 60 to 65% of them were duds. So imagine, and, and, a, and a percentage of those, of course, impacted and failed to explode. So imagine the impact, the effectiveness of the submarine force had had those torpedoes work better, like the Japanese torpedoes did from day one. Mm-hmm. If we were only as good as the Japanese, um, there would have been substantial difference. Yeah, I, I remember uh, in in some depth, uh, you know, Lockwood's looking at this thing when he's uh, the commander of the Southwest Pacific, and the torpedoes weren't even running at the right depth. They weren't like even running, running too deep. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was set and. And of course, the exploder problems, and they went through huge debates as to whether they should, uh, you know, deactivate mm-hmm. the magnetic portion of the exploder and just make it a contact exploder. Mm-hmm. Of course, Lockwood was—he uh, was a, a bulldog going mm-hmm. after this particular problem, and he was always, you know, on the uh, hands around the neck of the Bureau of Ordnance, and in fact, called conferences in places like Mare Island to get everybody together to try mm-hmm. to. Uh, to deal with this problem. And and it took a while. I mean, I think, as I remember, it was uh, probably late in 43 when we we really had uh, felt we had we had control of the problem and the numbers were were much better. And uh, and we were starting to make a real impact. And at the end of 43, the beginning of 44, if you look at the the tonnage totals, they skyrocket around January, February, 44. That's when the, when I wouldn't necessarily say the torpedo problem was fixed, but it was at least on the way to being fixed. And at that point, from then on to the end of the war, I mean, it was, we literally strangled the Japanese economy, you know, as, as you said earlier, Admiral, being an island nation, and especially from having experience in World War One, watching the German U-boats essentially try to do the same thing to, to Great Britain. And then again, in 1939, 40, 41, you know, we knew how to do this. And by 44, with the correct torpedoes, with the right people in command of the boats, with the right boats, we were able to just slowly strangle their economy. So much so that by the end of the war, you know, our subs were having trouble finding things to sink. <laughs> because because they'd sunk almost everything, you know, that floated. I mean, they were sinking sandpans with with deck guns for crying out loud. But well, and the lesson that, there, though, Seth, is that we sent submariners in harm's way for almost two for over two years, right? Yes, December forty one through early forty four, without an effective weapon, there were yeah. as as the admiral said, a lot of them were dying in accidents, and I think everybody knows. Every student of World War II knows 50, we lost 52 submarines right. during the war. But a lot of people don't realize that a third of those boats 
were lost to either accident or blue on blue. Mm-hmm. And um, th- that's an incredible number. And so, yeah, the conservatism that existed prior to the war made sense because boats were sinking right and left. In fact, Admiral King, I think, was put in charge of two different submarine rescue efforts prior to when he was Captain King prior to the war. And so he had experience with that, too. Uh, the problem is, the, as, as Admiral Nimitz liked to call it, calculated risk analysis needed to change once we were in a shooting war. And he pushed that real hard. Yeah. And, and it's funny, the, the people that kind of bubbled to the top, a lot of them were Naval Academy football players, folks like Slade Cutter and Babe Brown. <laughs> Maybe they just had a little different risk management calculus. I mean, Could uh, be, yeah. Yeah. You know, you, in, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, having been on the on the gridiron and kind of in the crucible, you know, their whole lives already. Yep. You you, you look, you know, you you talked about the skippers and, and we don't we will get into the individual skippers, you know, in different episodes later on. But, you know, even with the faulty torpedoes and by 1943, you know, the Gato class, well, 42, really, the Gato class boats, the fleet boats were coming into the fleet. You know, I, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, Gato herself came into the fleet in like January 42. I'd have to look up the date. Don't quote me on that. But regardless, you know, even at that stage with the faulty torpedoes, we had skippers who were willing to press, you know, push the edge. Yeah. And push the edge of sometimes, you know, sanity, really. You know, you you think of one guy, I think off the top of my head, of course, Mush Morton. Mush Morton. Exactly. (laughs) Read my mind. But I mean, but even guys like, like, like Mush who, who were, you know, the uber aggressive, you know, pirates, if you will, even they were running into trouble. I believe it was Morton's last second to last patrol where he went out to the sea of japan and he had a load of faulty torpedoes and this mm-hmm. is uh, wahoo was sunk in what october 43 so this would have been obviously late summer 43 when this happened and and you know even he the uber aggressive the highly successful you know the poster boy for the silent service even he was running into trouble so i mean it was a, it was a widespread problem across the entire fleet yeah. yeah i i think it's a it's a hugely important point and i I don't think people understand uh, the kind of risk that COs like that took. I mean, we were shooting torpedoes at 1,000 to 1,500 yards away. When we started doing it right. We started doing it right. And so you're coming in at night on the surface, you know. And, 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 you know, I mean, the horizon's 17,000 yards away, you know, at Mm -hmm. a certain height of eye. so the, these submarines were very, very close in and, and obviously easily visible to a lookout, you know, or, uh, and, and of course, from overhead from a, an aircraft, much, much more so. Uh, but uh, these folks uh, and some of the exploits, you, I mean, they're, they are so close that when these uh, ships zig, the escorts zig, they're passing 500 yards, maybe mm-hmm the side of the submarine and the risk of collision, of course, is ever, ever present. I mean, we actually changed the color of the submarines mm-hmm. over the course of the war. The paint. Yeah, yeah the, the, the paint from black to light gray, because as we went in and looked at it and recognized that they're going to be on the surface and they're going to be backlit maybe by the, you know, by the moon or something, you know, how do, how do we make them less detectable? Yeah, black, back, black creates a bigger silhouette or a more... Dis, you know, distinctive silhouette. So light gray is a little more subtle, right? Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, again, I we haven't hit this point yet um, in our podcast, but a total of 375 officers and 3131 enlisted men lost their lives. And that yielded a fatality rate, not a casualty rate, a fatality rate of 22%. So basically, almost one in four submariners who went to sea knew, you know, submariners who went to sea knew that almost one in four of them were going to lose their lives. And you know, much is made about the daytime strategic bombing over Germany, which should be memorialized as being heroic and critical to our victory in Europe. But it was even worse for our submariners. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I don't think people can really get their heads around. And as bad as it was for us, of course, the Germans lost 781 submarines. So, uh, and the Japanese lost uh, 130 to our 52. So, so life on a submarine was bad everywhere, worse mm-hmm. for the Germans. But it was, it was a place you can go to make a huge difference. Only 1.6% of Navy personnel were submariners. And I, and I t- like to tell the story that there were and are more dentists in the Navy than submarine officers. And yet they sunk 55% of enemy shipping, that 1.6% of American submarine officers. So, so that's incredible. To your point about the fatalities, Bill, just let, let the listeners think on this for a minute. You know, when USS Lexington, CV2, when she's going down at Coral Sea, you know, those guys had a significant amount of time to abandon ship. You know, there's mm-hmm. footage of it. There's pictures of it. The lines it coming off the side of the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had plenty of time to get these people off of the ship. They were eating ice cream as they were getting off the ship, right? In, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and, and not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. when the ships go down, you've got time to get out of there, or hopefully, at least yeah. you, you hope you do. When a submarine goes down, there aren't too many wounded mm-hmm. submariners who survive a sinking. I mean, when that thing goes down, they all go down. Yeah, there were a few cases where submarines were attacked sure. on the surface, and guys like Dick O'Kane survived. Exactly. You think of USS USS Tang is is you know top of mind. That's the first one, but our first one I think about. But but I mean, when when subs are sunk, more often than not, they're sunk submerged, and mm-hmm. nobody's getting out of that thing. Yeah. You know, nobody's getting out. And and even even when there might have been uh, some chance, I mean, our commanders were very sensitive to. Not allowing the submarine to be captured, so they scuttled right. it. Right, and, mm-hmm. and the Cromwell story is uh, is is well known. And the officers went down in the in the wardroom and started playing solitaire because you you can make sure the submarine went down, uh, mm-hmm. and and the technology, uh, all that information cannot be captured by the Japanese. You know, I, I think a point to make right here is how sensitive Lockwood was to uh, this, uh, and and Nimitz, of course, but to this loss of. Uh, of submarines and and how to and how to minimize uh, uh, the risk to his uh, to his troops. Uh, he worked very hard during the war uh, to build the advanced submarine bases. Uh, you know to get as far forward as he as he could. Uh, built one in the Marshalls, for example, later on in in Guam, obviously Midway, mm-hmm. uh, and he learned a lot of this from his time, obviously in the Southwest uh, Pacific. But, you know, clearly he wanted to be able to uh, get these submarines uh, repaired and refitted, generally put a submarine tender in one or two in each of these locations so that he had the proper capability. Uh, 
you wanted to clearly minimize the distance to these patrol areas that the submarines were going to be operating in. Uh, but also, he recognized he needed to give the troops uh, a break. He built what he called recuperation centers that Bill and I know as uh, sanctuaries. Sanctuaries, yeah. Uh, so that he could get uh, his crew off the submarine, uh, let them uh, relax a little bit, get a chance to, uh, you know, to re-energize. Uh, built one of the Marshall Islands at Majuro and uh, kind of the pristine waters there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in Pearl Harbor, uh, he took over the Royal Hawaiian so that when the submarines came back to Pearl Harbor, they went right into the shipyard. The crews left the submarines, went down to the Royal Hawaiian, had two weeks, maybe three weeks to, uh, you know, to uh, refresh. Unwind. Uh, and then, of yeah. course, uh, uh, they're going back to their ship. They're going to take a ship that's uh, ready to go, refuel, new torpedoes, and back into action. Yep. He, he wrote, I was going to say, Lockwood was a big proponent of rotating a lot of the crew in and out, too. Uh, I, you talked about the subtenders, uh, Admiral, and and I know there were several, I, I knew several guys that that did that very thing, you know, that would make two or three patrols and then it would go into midway for, you know, just for, for conversation's sake. And they were pulled out of that boat, you know, whatever, silver size or whatever, they were pulled off of that boat and somebody else took their place and they spent some time on that subtender. And maybe a month or two or more later, you know, mm -hmm. them and three or four or five other guys were assigned to whatever boat was coming in. So other guys could get off and rotate them. And it was mm -hmm. about keeping, you know, Lockwood, to your point, sir, it, it was about keeping his people fresh. And, you know, a, an exhausted submariner is more liable to make a mistake that could, you know, potentially cost the lives of everyone aboard as a board, as opposed to somebody who is a little more fresh, a little more, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say anxious to get back to sea, but anxious to get back to doing what they were supposed to be doing in the first place. Yeah, and as Bill and I know well, um, if you're in the middle of a of a submarine refit and maintenance period, you're not going to get any sleep on a submarine. Right. <laughs> period. So, I mean, it wasn't. It was more than R and R. It was a matter of necessity to get them off the boat while the boat was being maintained. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yes, sir. You know, you spoke about Admiral Nimitz a while, a while back. Um, so he was your predecessor as Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, uh, also a submariner. Um, and in fact, unlike Admiral King, he was a real submarine-qualified, dolphin-wearing submariner. Admiral King went to sub-school, but never actually qualified in submarines. Um, did, how, did that ever, that, that thought, how did that impact you when you realized, holy cow, I'm holding the same position as Admiral Chester Nimitz, one of the most noteworthy, famous, probably one of the best admirals in Navy history. Yeah, almost every day from the mm -hmm. moment that you walk into uh, to Nimitz house, which is the residence at Makalapa. And right. of course, you know, Nimitz came out, uh, you know, essentially at Christmas uh, to take over the Pacific fleet. Mm -hmm. uh, the house that he lived in was the same house that I lived in. They were kind of prefab units at that point in time, uh, built in the Makalapa crater there across from Pearl Harbor. Uh, he lived there with his chief of staff and his his doctor. Uh, we all know that at that point in time, uh, you know, wives were, were being either removed from Pearl Harbor or certainly couldn't come out to Pearl Harbor. And his wife lived in San Francisco that mm -hmm. whole period of time. And, you know, as you and the first thing that, that I read was actually Nimitz's biography mm -hmm. by Potter. And, 
my, my, my predecessor, another Sarmina, Archie Clemens, had yep. it. Uh, when I walked into that house, that was sitting right on the desk. You know, I can imagine. And, and you were struck by the, the kinds of decisions Nimitz had to make, um, you know, the, the risk-reward trade-offs. Because every time he ordered uh, uh, to take another one of these uh, essentially airstrips, you know, these are amphibious assaults, but we're trying to build airstrips every 600 miles to get us closer to the empire. And, uh, and whether it's uh, Tarawa or Peleliu, I mean, he knew that we were going to lose, you know, three to 5,000 army and, and Marine uh, soldiers. Uh, it's, uh, these are really tough decisions. And mm. he, uh, you know, once he, once he ordered uh, the operation to take place, uh, it was in the hands of his commanders, like uh, Bruins and and Turner and and Holland, uh, because there there wasn't uh, instantaneous communications. I mean, nobody's up, you know, on a VTC like we are right now. I mean, Nimitz gave the order, and then he had to wait until he got a report uh, at his. Uh, at his commander's behest, right, uh, as to how that operation had gone. I mean, the stories are, you can see it at Nimitz house. I mean, he had, he had a horseshoe pit, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. on, the, on the side of the house. Uh, he had nothing to do but go out and, and, uh, and maybe throw a few horseshoes as he waited to find out whether uh, the plan had been executed as they'd hoped and what the opposition's response were and, and obviously the ultimate result. So when you mentioned Nimitz, you know, um, you, you, your mind wanders about what might have happened if certain things had not gone the way they did. One of those things that I always wonder about is Nimitz almost dying in a plane crash, an amphibious plane that landed in San Francisco when he was on his way to one of the first um, conferences with Admiral King. He survived. A pilot actually died in that plane crash as they were landing in San Francisco Bay. Uh, his Submarine Force Pacific Fleet at the time, Admiral Robert English, did die in another plane crash, which is what caused Admiral Lockwood to be moved from Australia to Hawaii and assume the role of um, sub-PAC. You know, the, the transition from Admiral English to Admiral Lockwood, are you aware of any real differences that Admiral Lockwood was able to make having been down in Australia? And seeing it first, a lot of these things firsthand before he became subpack. Do you think that made a difference? Well, yeah. I mean, you never know because, as, as you point out, these are hypotheticals, right? Uh, but I think, uh, I think having Lockwood forward, um, where you know, for that period of time, where he was, he was in the fray from day one, right? And mm -hmm. he, uh, he had very up close and personal understanding of the of the CEOs of those submarines mm -hmm. of those crews mm -hmm. he was down on them a lot and talks about him sitting down with the wardrooms and talking about uh, tactics and employment and, and operating areas uh, so on and so forth I, I think that had to uh, that had to inform his view as to how we were going to take this fight to the enemy and in great measure and mm -hmm. so so he wasn't part of kind of the almost peacetime uh, submarine force, uh, and and he wasn't in a 
in a bureaucratic uh, position. He was in a, uh, and we've, we've all seen this, uh, the farther forward you are, the more operational you are, the more you're worried about getting the job done as opposed to who you're, who you're pleasing and what right. the bureaucratic issues are. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it, uh, uh, it certainly influenced how, how he uh, prosecuted the war, how he selected people uh, mm -hmm. to be the commanding officers of the ships. And mm -hmm. as you point out, how he rotated people in and out. And, uh, you know, there were, there were lots of folks in desk jobs that said, I want to, I want to get into the fight. I want to take a submarine board. Uh, he picked some of those to do that, but not all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that, that choice of who was going to, who's going to lead this effort were hugely important. I, I can't imagine what would have happened if we'd lost Nimitz. And if you've seen these PBYs, I mean, that's how they moved around. These right. are yeah. what we used to call seaplanes, right? And uh, and that's how they moved around the Pacific. And of course, they landed right out here in Pearl Harbor. in uh, Off of in, Fort Island. Off of Fort Island and East Lock, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and of course, the Pan Am planes were essentially at the start. Uh, that's uh, that's what they were flying, also. Uh, but Nimitz uh, Nimitz's personality was particularly well suited for this particular effort. Uh, mm. uh, very different than King, uh, uh, as uh, as you know. Well, I won't go into all that because I'm sure you have uh, before. Uh, but Nimitz was, you know, uh, quiet but very firm, and of course, uh, he understood. Uh, the, uh, the the kind of leaders like Spruance mm -hmm. that uh, uh, were going to serve this nation best at that particular point. Yes, you know, you, you you speak about Admiral Admiral Lockwood, and and you Admiral, you made the mention of of him coming aboard the boats. You know, after going down into the wardroom and drinking coffee and having a cigarette with the with the officers, with the with the captain and the XO, and that was something he tried to do. I know he wasn't able to do it every time a boat came into to, to Pearl Harbor and then later in other locations, but he tried to do it as often as he possibly could because that's, as you said, to your point, that's where he gleaned the information on how to best get the job done. It wasn't necessarily looking at the books. It wasn't necessarily, it certainly wasn't talking to the people in Washington who weren't out there. It was talking to the people that were actually doing the job and getting results. And that informed his decisions on what he wanted to do. And because he listened to his people, he didn't just, he didn't just pay him lip service and, and go down there and say, okay, what you got? And then, you know, great. And then walk out and not do it. No, he actually listened to his people and then employed those as many of those suggestions as he possibly could that he believed were good it, 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 that ultimately helped out that not only just those particular skippers or boats or what have you, but the entire submarine force. I mean, so much so that they loved him to death, that the sub force loved Lockwood. They called him Uncle Charlie for crying out loud. You know, whether to his face or not, I do not know. But but, but I mean, they Probably really not. did. Probably, Probably not. not, I would imagine. Probably not. Well, you know, it's a, it's a great leadership lesson here, you know, about, about how you get things done. And, and you know, and even and not only going down to the wardens when they're in port, but, but he, he rode a bunch of boats during the, the war. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, he, he tried to catch a ride to Midway, right, on one of the, one of the boats from Pearl Harbor. Of course, he had to ask Nimitz each time, and Nimitz didn't let him do it much. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, because, and, and this is a lesson we've all learned in, in command, you, 
you, you'll learn more in um, if I was on an amphibious uh, uh, big deck, I'd learn more going down and working out in the gym for an hour than I would uh, up in the uh, conference. Right. Yeah. Same thing. You learn more in lower level engine room talking to the watch at, at two o'clock in the morning as to what the real material condition of your ship is. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you do from uh, the maintenance and repair meeting that's held every week. So uh, hugely valuable, great leadership style and, and technique and, and hugely effective. Mm. Admiral, we, you talked about Admiral King a, a moment ago and, we covered in a separate episode the fact that Admiral King, his motto with dealing with the press was, don't talk to the press, you know, until you've won, and then you tell them who, who won, right? And um, we talk about how that allowed other entities, and, you know, we, we, we pound on MacArthur a lot, to take credit for things that they actually had nothing to do with, like the victory at Midway. There was one famous incident, though where King must have said, see, that's why you don't talk to the press. And it had to do with a Kentucky congressman by the name of Andrew J. May. Uh, do you remember this incident? Yeah, I, I sure do. Speaking of uh, talking out of school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. And this no, is a, go ahead. You go ahead and tell the story and then I'll, I'll provide uh, uh, some thoughts. Well, as, as so often happens with politicians who want to appear that they're in the know with their constituents. This Congressman May did a tour of the Pacific. And when he came back, he was talking to reporters and he bragging about the fact, oh, look how smart I am, look how much, how in tune I am with what's going on in the Pacific. And he tells the reporters, yeah, you know, um, you know, we've been very lucky with our submarine because the Japanese are setting their depth charges too shallow. Yeah. Let that linger for a moment. And an article is actually printed and I think the Chicago Sun, if I'm not mistaken. And happily, the Japanese don't read the Chicago Sun or something. I'm not sure what happened. But Admiral Lockwood did talk about, he actually gave a number uh, to the number of Americans died because this one congressman talked to the press. Yeah. I think he said it was 800 submariners died because of this congressman's loose lips. Has that, in your knowledge, has anything like that ever happened before or since? Well, I think it's certainly happened since. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll give you my take on this thing. Uh, you know, there's a there's a good reason the submarine force was called the silent service, right? I mean, uh, you know, one is of course their detectability and so on. But uh, you know, the the philosophy at the time uh, uh, extended well past King, but it was it was publish nothing, uh, tell the enemy nothing they can take advantage of, which of course we violated with that particular congressman. And, and also, uh, as you read about the planning and efforts to put these operations together by Nimitz's staff at SyncPAC, they they restricted access uh, tremendously, and they they limited it to just people that absolutely had a need to know. For example, uh, in most of these uh, amphibious operations, uh, only the commanding officer of the submarine, or maybe just the Wolfpack commander. Uh, knew the details of the operation. And that's because they were very concerned that people uh, would be take, taken captive, prisoners of war, and obviously the Japanese would torture them to reveal uh, whatever they knew, other plans, so on and so forth. So uh, 
it, it was a strategy that uh, that was baked in. Uh, so not only submarine force, but I think the Pacific fleet to to a large extent is still you know loose lips sink ships mm-hmm. piece. But uh, and of course in our careers we carried it on uh, during our period of time doing special operations that we just said point blank we don't talk about submarine operations, period. And and to this frankly, day. yeah, to this day, and that 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 served us very well. Uh, I mean, subsequent to that, we've had you know a few situations where uh, information got out. Uh, Blind man's bluff was probably the mm-hmm. the one that is most evident. We had to make decisions as to whether we were actually going to prosecute those people mm-hmm. or not. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's. The pressure to talk to on this stuff is huge, especially in the current day and age with all of the opportunities to uh, get information out. But uh, in in fact, that strategy served us very well. My guess is that uh, there are folks, you know, after all the information that was released about special forces operations, that if they could put that genie back in the bottle, they yeah. would. Yeah. That's right. There is there a seal that doesn't have a book out right now? Kind of a that's the conventional wisdom these days. Yeah. yeah. Seth, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to say that that you know the the was it May what was his first name? Um, yeah, Andrew. Was, Andrew J. May. Andrew. Yeah, yeah. That was something that reverberated through the submarine service. You know, almost immediately. You know, and and that you know. I mean, let's be real. The Japanese did have spies in the United States. They mm-hmm. did, you know, just like the Germans did. And that information did wind up getting its way in some way, shape or form back to yeah. Japan. And it yeah. did it did definitely cost American lives. And, and I mean, that's it, it's important to note that, again, that, that, you know, the silent service was the silent service for a reason. And also to a point. To that, to that point, rather, I should say that because of the fact that they were the silent service, nobody really knew until way after the war what the right. submarines actually did, which mm-hmm. was, as I think it was Bill who actually first said it, you know, saying 55% of the shipping that the Japanese lost for Korean Island. Nobody really knew that mm-hmm. because there weren't. Uh, you know, you read about Butch O'Hare and, and the newspapers in the United States during the war. You read about different, you know, Medal of Honor recipients. There's only, to my knowledge, there's only one or two times where a submarine commander is relatively widely known. That being the first being Mush Morton. Mm-hmm. You know, his his picture does appear in the newspapers, but he's but one was, of the I think few. it was pro- yeah, no, it was before he was killed. That's right. It was before he was killed because yeah. there's a picture of him with his son and he's holding up the yeah. t-shirt with the Wahoo flag on it. And, but mm-hmm. regardless of this, he was like one of two or three. And and the point is, is that after the war, you had this force that sank more than half of the Japanese shipping of the war that took a tremendous loss in personnel mm-hmm. and nobody knew anything about it. Yeah, despite know. having seven Medal of Honor recipients, right. CEOs, um, they were not household names, were they? No, not even not not close. And if you if you go look, you know, some of the Medal of Honor recipients, and God, God bless them. God bless them. But if you read the Medal of Honor citations for the submarine force Medal of Honor recipients, you read that and you're like, no, there's no <laughs> way that can be real. But it yeah. is. I mean, if if you look at O'Kane's. And you read the citation, one thing, but if you actually read what O'Kane did to earn that medal, not that he was setting out to earn that medal, but I mean, what he did to warrant the 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 awarding of that medal, 
it's like you made that stuff up, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's incredible. And it's, it's something that, you know, they made movies after the war. They even made movies during the war. Destination Tokyo is one, one of right. my very favorite yeah. movies. I love that movie, but you know, Operation Pacific with John Wayne and, you know, run silent, run deep. There's a ton of them. Which Ed Beach hated, by the way. <laughs> what? No, run he silent, run the, deep. He hated the movie. Yeah. 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 So, but not only loosely based on his book. But but Let's there's see. you know it's an exciting story of the war. But even still, even today, I think it's a relatively unknown aspect of of the Pacific War. It really is, in my opinion, anyway. And Admiral, as much as I love Hunt for Red October, you know that canonical movie about the Pacific submarine force, I don't think has been made yet. I mean, what other missions when they when they weren't shooting torpedoes, they were doing a lot of other kind of missions, weren't oh, they? Yeah. Some that you can't even believe. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's not well known either, but. You know, that there was a period of time when uh, in early in the war where we just didn't have torpedoes. We didn't have mm-hmm. enough torpedoes to uh, to fully outfit uh, the ships that uh, we wanted to send forward. So we sent them on mining missions. And, of course, these are hugely dangerous missions. I mean, you know, yeah. you don't release mines in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You release mines in the front of harbors and yeah, right. waterways and places like that uh, where, where the enemy... Uh, you know, can come into contact with them. So that means the enemy is there. Um, right. When you're doing and you got to get out of that harbor that you just planted the mines in without getting a blown getting up by one of your own mines. And you had Gene Flucky attacking a train <laughs> ashore, right? <laughs> and, and of course, some of these uh, uh, lifeguard operations, pilot rescue missions, I mean, these submarines are sitting right off the coast of truck. You know, mm-hmm. I mean... I mean, Chichi Jima rescuing George H.W. Bush, our future president. And, and they're, I mean, they're, they're a mile or two off because uh, when that pilot bails out, they need to get them. I think one submarine picked up 22 pilots. In it was one the tank. Yeah. It, it was um, tank. It was O'Kane's boat. Yeah. O'Kane's boat picked up 22 pilots off a truck. And I, I want to say it was her fourth war patrol. It was a record that's. You know, he he made a record of rescued uh, aviators that day, and it's still staying. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, and there's and not too many subs there, there picking up more, there were, years, but. You know, before every amphibious uh, operation, uh, they had to reconnoiter the beaches, take pictures of them, put people, you know, ashore. Go stick your bow into the sand and get people ashore that can go in and do this, or or maybe you sat a mile off and put a rubber, put them in a rubber raft and and let them. Go in, but these mm-hmm. uh, uh, these operations, these were submarines that were doing that because nobody else had the stealth um, and the ability to operate uh, in those contested environments like that. It you know before the before the landing or the the invasion, uh, the Philippines. You know an awful lot of the resupply that took place for the guerrillas. Yep. Uh, you know the the insurgents, the coast watchers, uh, people that were trying to to help uh, this war effort was provided by submarines. I mean, fuel and food, um, pretty amazing. And of course, uh, it was also the kind of the advent of special forces, right? Yeah. Well, you, you, that's a perfect segue into to another mission that, you know, that the submarines provided uh, support for, well, support, support and transportation, which is the making rate. You know, it's one of the, you know, diversionary, quote unquote, attacks that the United States launched just before, you know, or just, shortly after the invasion of Guadalcanal. But, I mean, that was done by submarine. Mm-hmm. You know, the sub, I forget which one. And those were Marine Raiders too, right? Those they were 2nd second, second, second Raider Battalion. Yeah, it was 2nd yeah. uh, Carlson Traders. Yeah. But, uh, 
it was, uh, I believe it was the Nautilus. Was it the Nautilus? I think so. Yeah. That brought, you know, all these guys up to make an island and, you know, like you said, put them ashore on rubber rafts Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. And I mean, it was, that was the, some of the first special operations in the Pacific War and World War II, and they were done by submarines. Nautilus of Midway fame. And oh, by the way, some, so much of what you said, Admiral, I, I fear is still true today that we have the potential for running out of torpedoes should we have to go to war again. But we have the, uh, we're still the only people who can get into contested areas stealthily and, you know, and hopefully get back out. And, and all, in fact, that's much of what submarines are still about in 2022 hasn't changed in the last 80 years. No, it, it hasn't. I remember I was uh, I was in Oppo two as the aide to Admiral Bob Long, uh, who was kind of the, the head of the submarine force at that point in time. And the lesson of torpedoes from World War II was absolutely inculcated into every submariner from then on uh, mm-hmm. about torpedoes. <laughs> and it was uh, ain't going to happen on my watch. We're going to have torpedoes at work and. We're going to buy them in quantities that are necessary. Now, do we ever do we ever buy them in the quantities we really need to? No, I mean, yeah. I mean, but um, a tremendous lesson. It, you know, there's a there's one other subject I'd like to talk before uh, we run out of time here, and, yes. and that is the um, uh, the manner in which technology was inserted into the submarine force. Uh, you know, over this period of time, because you know we've talked about. Uh, torpedoes and we went from uh, obviously steam driven torpedoes the mark 14 the mark 23 to the uh to the mark 18 i believe 18. it was electric torpedo because yeah, obviously we we didn't want the wake we we wanted a torpedo that you, you couldn't uh detect and uh and we had problems with those torpedoes too but but it was important uh, uh the 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 advent of the use of radar was hugely important and and a, and a radar on a periscope you know so you could get an accurate range was uh, uh was key the, the ability i think we actually invented the concept of the signal ejector then too so we could put uh you know an invasion device out you know that might mm-hmm. detect the, the torpedo uh, those kinds of things were uh were tremendously important and and night periscopes i mean we didn't think about this at uh, you know at the start of the war that you you know we're going to be making these approaches in at night, we need a periscope that is much more functional in that period of time, and and that kind of tied into what the submarine continues to do the day, today. But these uh, submarine operational research groups that were you know academically led and driven uh, that looked at it, not only technology um, like we're talking about, but also our our uh, our tactics and operations and how they can be improved in order to uh, fortify the performance of the submarine force. So those those were all uh, key aspects of, of this effort. Mm. And then one in final analysis, Admiral, the, um, the, the whole notion that Nimitz said, yes, you submariners get out there and starve the nation of Japan, it worked, didn't it? Yeah, it, it clearly worked. And uh, uh, Everybody knows, and we talk about this today, and you, you see it uh, on that uh, any any effort, any military effort, any war effort uh, is only as good as the logistics that mm-hmm. you have. And when you can't uh, when you can't uh, fortify and resupply with uh, with fuel and people and ammunition, all of the things that were moving uh, back and forth in that first and second island chain, 
in Japan, uh, it it absolutely brought them to their knees. Yes, sir. We talked about the logistic impact on um, the Battle of Eastern Solomons when WASP had was pulled out of the fight because it needed fuel. They didn't get fueled in time uh, yeah. before the fight began. So, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, so, the, the, I was going to say the fact to, to, to pile on to your point, Admiral, the, the fact that, as I said earlier in the recording, that in 1945, that the submarines were basically prowling Japanese waters. I'm talking home island waters, you know, with impunity. They could do whatever they wanted. They could hang near surface off the off the coast. If I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want to do that, but they practically could. That they had literally nothing else to shoot at, nothing else to sink. You know, I mean, that they were sinking fishing boats. They, they were sinking sampans. And, and well, they, they were going into the what the Japanese called the inland sea, right? Right. Yeah. And getting sunk by mines doing it. Looking for something to sink. Looking for something to sink, exactly. And, yep. and and the fact that at the end of the war, I mean, this is not you could argue that it was one reason that the Japanese finally, you know, gave up the ghost that we were literally starving them out. And we were. I mean, that was that's exactly what happened. At the end of the war, 1945, if you look at the Japanese population, they were beginning to starve. They were beginning to feel the effect hardcore the, the military already had felt the effect but the population was now beginning to feel it in in a greater greater effect every single day that went by because they weren't able to get any food they weren't able to get the things that they needed to maintain a daily existence to build airplanes to build yeah. ships absolutely yeah. and it was because of the subs the subs yeah. were strangling japan and it worked that was what uh you know admiral stark ordered on december 7th 1941 and in september 19 september 2nd 1945 it brought that to fruition. You could actually see, you know, the effect of the submarines. In fact, the United States Strategic Bombing Survey conclusion was the war against shipping was perhaps the most decisive single factor in the collapse of the Japanese economy and logistic support of Japanese military naval power. Submarines accounted for the majority of vessel sinkings and the greater part of the reduction in tonnage. I mean, that's the that was a joint. United States Strategic Bombing Survey, not the submarine force pounding their chest. Hey, Bill, I've got, and uh, Seth, I've got one last thought. Yes, sir. Like provide, uh, just to wrap that this up. And, and you know, we talk about the leadership in the Pacific, and you've talked about, uh, you know, Nimitz and Spruance, and, and obviously we talked a lot about uh, Vice Admiral Lockwood. And, of course, there was the, the amphibious team of uh, – uh, Richmond K. Turner and Turner. and and Holland, mm -hmm. uh, and you you mentioned this in a previous conversation. You know, I would uh, commend to any of our listeners today if they have a if they have a free moment, fifteen minutes driving up uh, two eighty towards San Francisco. The Golden Gate National Cemetery is located, I think, about eleven or twelve miles south of, of San Francisco. You ought to stop and go in and, and see the. Uh, uh, the location where Nimitz, Spruance, Lockwood, and Turner are all buried uh, together in very modest headstones uh, in that cemetery, and it will uh, it will clearly give you the uh, the sense of the cohesiveness of this leadership team throughout the Pacific in World War II. Yes, sir. They wanted to be buried together. We uh, I'm friends with Spruance's grand son and granddaughter and uh and we're going to do an episode on admiral spruance 
from his house. So that's going to be very cool. That'd be great. Yes, sir. All right. Be it's yep. been a great pleasure um, doing this today with both of you. And uh, uh, really, uh, uh, I commend you for the whole series. And, and now you got me excited to go back and watch the rest of these episodes. <laughs> well, thank you, Admiral. We well, hope you, you do. And if we said anything that you take issue with, don't be afraid to call us out. Uh, there have been Nobody plenty of people is. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> plenty of people doing that. So the fact that I'm not a historian, I keep saying that, but sooner or later, I can't use that as an excuse, can I? <laughs> All right. All right, yeah, Seth, you're going to outro. Take care. Thank yes, you, sir. And with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcasts and give us a rating and review. We certainly would appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so once again, my name is Seth Parrott, and I want to thank you very much. Admiral, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure and an honor, sir. And uh, Bill? And great seeing you again, Admiral. Hope to visit with you when I'm in Hawaii next time. Yes, sir. Come out and see us in Pearl Harbor. Here we go. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Take care. Right.